Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. So I hung up the phone, and my hands were shaking so badly. And I thought, I have no idea how the fuck to do this. So I called my good friend in New York City, who is also a priest, and I said, how the fuck did they tell us how to do this in seminary? And he said they didn't. Matt sent me a message. was like, hey, do you want to go to this really big, abandoned, massive like, plant out in the middle of nowhere with me? Yes, strange man from the internet. I will. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hankin. And this week on the podcast, Communion. Two stories about connecting with the souls of the departed. Have you ever received communion, Laura? Um, I think I did when I was pretty young um, and we were still going to Episcopal Church. Oh, right. I forgot about this was before we found out that the, um, I guess they're called rectors, that the rector was sleeping with a member of the congregation. Ooh, sexy. But that sounds like yeah. it was consensual, which is, you know, that's a real step away. Yeah, that was okay. And he had a, he had a motorcycle, so it makes sense. <laughs> wow. I love, I want to hear that story. But this week, these are going to be two stories about um, two people connecting with the dead. Before we get started, we want to thank our podcast sponsor, Mend Acupuncture, which was named the best place to get poked. It's uh, just such a beautiful place to go and get economically sound and low stress acupuncture sessions. All right. So Ariane Rice is a real friend of the stoop. She first shared a story a couple Christmases ago about having to give the Christmas Eve service. So she's a, um, she's a, actually, I think she's an Episcopal priest. She's Episcopal, right? I think so. I'm going to look that up. She's a priest of some court, some, and I've been to her Christmas Eve service and it was awesome. Yes. So the story she first shared on the stoop was about having to give a Christmas Eve service like several days after learning that she and her husband were getting divorced and how hard it was to stand in front of that congregation and you know, profess all of these really beautiful things when she was really feeling like shit. This story that we're featuring on the podcast today is um, from earlier in her um, priesthood um, when she was just starting out and had a really challenging experience that turned into a beautiful one. Take a listen. Everything about my job when I started was unexpected, and that was especially true the first year. It was my third week on the job, and my boss, the senior priest at my church, was on vacation, because that's what you do in the church. When you're new, they throw you in there, and then the boss goes on vacation. (laughs) And the phone call was put through to my office, and I picked up the phone. Hi. And the gentleman introduced himself to me, or reintroduced himself to me, because I had met him earlier on a Sunday, but I couldn't remember anybody's name. And he said, "Um, two nights ago, our son jumped off the overpass of 15501. Can you come to our house to help us plan the funeral this afternoon? So I hung up the phone, and my hands were shaking so badly. 
And I thought, I have no idea how the fuck to do this. So I called my good friend in New York City, who was also a priest, and I said, how the fuck did they tell us how to do this in seminary? And he said, they didn't. Because that's not what you learn in seminary. You learn a lot about rules and the ways to do church right, and none of that means shit when you're outside the church. So I went to the house, and I have to admit, the entire time I was driving to their house, all I was thinking about was myself. What in the world would I say? I could barely process um, this tragedy of these parents, a young adult son who is now dead, and I had a brand new-ish young child at home as a parent. This was far too enormous for me, and I had no idea to expect what I got there. So I walked into the kitchen, and the mood was relatively light, which surprised me. And they were bustling about, and the mom was opening and closing cabinets looking for something, and the dad was unloading the dishwasher, and somebody sat at the kitchen table who was introduced to me as a friend and a neighbor, and she offered me a cup of coffee, so I just sat down, and they just started talking. And the mom started telling me everything about their son and how he had been dealing with mental illness from a very young young age, and they had had doctors and hospitals and interventions, and as he had gotten older, they eventually got to a point where they realized they probably were not going to be able to save them, and they were going to do the best they can, but at a certain point, he was on his own. And I just sat, and I listened, and all of a sudden, the mom said to the husband, hey, honey do you know where the duct tape is? And he said, no, I don't. She's like, well, do you think we need duct tape or will the Tupperware seal work? And I sat there going, what the hell are they talking about? And the neighbor looked at me and she said, oh, so Kevin's going to have three services and they're dividing his ashes right now into three different Tupperware containers. So um, there'll be the funeral at our church this weekend, then the funeral in the other state for the rest of the family, and then the college friends want to have a memorial in New York. And I immediately remembered my rules that they taught me in seminary about how you're not supposed to do that, but I kept my mouth shut. (laughs) And then they sat at the table and they told me more incredible stories about their son. And there was lots of crying and there was lots of laughing. And they handed me the Tupperware at a certain point and I left to bring it to church. And as I walked to my car, I just remember thinking, okay, and... I felt like I was holding a person. And when I got to my car, I didn't want to put him on the floor because that seemed disrespectful, but I was concerned about him being and moving around on the seat. And I was like, the seatbelt seems like too much, so I'm just going to take my prayer book and put it in front of the Tupperware, which I did. And then I sat in my scion, and I turned it on, and I surprised myself by saying, hey, Kevin, so what music do you want to listen to as we drive to church? And I started laughing, and I was like, is this being a priest? And about 15 years later, it kind of is. Thank you. I love that story. It just has such a, it's just perfectly Ariane. It's like light and deep and and caring and, and uh, willing to talk about hard stuff and a funny almost irreverent way. You know what? I looked it up. She is a reverend. That's right. Yes. But it is Episcopal. So. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Good. Before we get on to the next story, we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, a great sponsor of the Stoop podcast. You can find them at newsstands and online at baltimoremagazine.com. All right, Jess, why don't you intro 
Evan's story. Okay, so this is a story from Evan Woodard, who is just such a Renaissance man. He, um, I think this is definitely a, a function of the pandemic. He, and he talks about it in his story. He just, he just followed his heart and spirit in, um, in wanting to, ex uh, it's urban exploring, finding objects from long ago within the settings that you're not accustomed to finding them or that they're all around and you didn't realize it. So, and you first saw him on um, Instagram, isn't that right? I did. And I need to be careful here because I don't want to sound creepy, but I saw him on Instagram because the objects that he shows on Instagram are, are beautiful. And, you know, it's like milky bottles from 150 years ago. And then he gives you the context of, of the factory that created the bottle. And he does all this research, but he also does it without a shirt on often and he is very easy on the eyes <laughs> but that's is it really does he is, are you saying it's often there have been more than a few times where i'm like oh he doesn't um have a shirt on and that's fine that's great uh i love that he doesn't have a, i mean but that's not why i'm looking at this uh anyway well anyway if you want to take a look um he's at salvage arc on uh, Instagram. Yes. And I am just taking a quick look and I don't see a lot of shirtlessness right now. So Jessica. I mean, maybe, um, maybe you know you what? Everyone grows up after a while and maybe it, it's also winter. So um, yeah, that's right. I, yes, it seems like he has pivoted from the shirtless, um, but. But it's still good. <laughs> so take a listen to Evan's story. <laughs> So I've always been into history. Uh, as a kid, my parents would take me to antique stores instead of Chuck E. Cheese. I would watch the History Channel all the time, and I played Indiana Jones on repeat until I broke the VHS tapes. But as I got older, I decided to get into something a little more daring. That was urban exploring. Urban exploring, you go out through abandoned buildings uh, and facilities and uh, like power plants, hospitals, mental asylums, things like that, and you take a photo of what's left behind. You try not to take anything there, that's bad. During the early days of the internet, aka MySpace age, uh, I took all these photos and I started posting them online. And I learned of a huge community of other urban explorers. One of the people I met was this guy named Matt. Matt sent me a message, was like, hey, do you want to go to this really big, abandoned, massive like, plant out in the middle of nowhere with me? Yes, strange man from the internet, I will. <laughs> and thankfully, Matt did not uh, kill me, uh, and I didn't kill him. And we developed like this great bond. We would go, we would go exploring all over the United States. Uh, and even our travels took us overseas to Chernobyl. Uh, yes, this is before it became the radioactive Disneyland that it is now, thanks to the HBO TV show. So after doing all that, I kind of took a break. I focused on my career in cybersecurity. And up until, I guess, March of 2020, that's all I did. But like everyone else here, you got kind of bored during COVID and you had to find something else to do. You wanted to get out of the house. Well, Matt was in the woods one day, and he posted a photo of a bottle that he found on the ground. It was an antique beer bottle. And I was like, that's really cool. So I sent him a message and asked him, like, hey, where'd you find this at? You know, what's the story behind this? Did you just get it at an antique store or something like that? He goes, no, they're just laying all over the place. That was, like, fascinating to me. I can just go out in the woods and find antiques instead of going to the store to buy it. I was all in from that point. So we go out the following day. We start hiking. We pull up beer bottles, medicine, sodas, all from the early 1900s. This is the greatest hobby ever. I'm out in the woods, I'm getting antiques, I'm a happy camper. 
As we're continuing this, we learned that this hobby of ours actually has a proper name. It's called relic hunting or bottle digging, depending on which version you're doing. This version that we're doing involves us going outside, looking for former uh, like landmarks, like buildings, homes, businesses that are long gone. We use our skills from urban exploring, matching up satellite imagery to places that we now know on the maps from back in the day, like churches and rivers, to find the locations of all these places. One day we're in the woods hiking, and I literally trip over a bottle. It's the best day ever. I pick it up, and by this point, we had really gotten good at identifying bottles and knowing what they are. This one I pick up, it says Heinzlinger and Company. Never heard of it. Looks cool, though. Put it in my backpack. Keep moving. We get a couple more beer bottles and sodas throughout the day. I eventually get back home, and I pull up the bottle, and I start researching it. I go to Enoch Pratt's website. I don't know if you guys know this, but they have an archive of all the Baltimore Sun articles going back to 19, or 1837, which is awesome. So I pull it up, I type it in, boom, Heinzlinger Company, 1880, 1890, got all the articles. But there's one article that stands out, one that was from 1901. And I was like, why is there this one article from 1901 when this company went out of business in 1900? So I open it up, and I see that Heinzlinger's son had been called to be a witness for an execution. Now, if you're here in Baltimore City, you know that you get jury duty every year. Now, let's think about you getting execution duty every year, too. Jury duty is not that bad anymore. So after I see this, I want to know, like, what's the story behind this execution? Who's the person? I start going through old case records and everything like that, and this is what I find. On October 27th, 1900, a man walking down near uh, where M&T Bank, Bank Stadium is on Baynard Street finds a woman with her head caved in. Laying next to her was a bloody cobblestone. This man runs to the police and tells him, hey, there's a body over here. Come investigate. The police officer rolls up. He's like, hey, I know her. That's Mrs. Butler. Mrs. Butler was, was at one point married to a John Butler. John Butler was an upstanding citizen in Baltimore City. He was part of, he was the president of the Young Black Republican Group here in Baltimore City. This is before Republicans switched sides. <laughs> just a little, just a little head, just a little background information for y'all here. So, and so I'm looking at this, and the police officer goes, without any other questions, he does ask the, the, the man that witnessed it, or found the body, did you see anyone leaving this area? He said, I saw a black man, that was it. This is a predominantly black neighborhood. Okay. So with that information, the police officer is like, you know what? I got this. It's John Butler. Case closed. What? No. That's not how this should work out. But this is how it does. John was arrested at his friend's house, which was over on the other side of the city. You guys know how hard it is to get across the city these days. Back then, it was even harder. So there's no way that John made it across town lickety split like that. But the police officer finds him, arrests him. Within two months, the city of Baltimore finds John guilty on nothing but circumstantial evidence. John is sentenced to death. So that's December of 1901. Throughout that time, as he sat in Baltimore City Jail on Murder Row, he lost a lot of weight, got very weak, and he was only visited by one person, his reverend. His reverend came to him and said, John, if you confess, the state will just give you a life sentence. We will not execute you. John, say, John maintained his innocence. He said, you know what? I did not do this. I'm not going to confess anything I did not do. Up until the day before his uh, execution, on August 23rd, 1901, the, pa the reverend came back once more and said, John, you're about to die. Confess. 
That's it. Go to your, go to heaven or hell, wherever you got to go, uh, with an empty, you know, heart. And John said, "If I had done this, I would have told you a long time ago, but I did not do this." John was so weak the following day that sheriff's deputies had to pick him up and carry him to the gallows. He was unable to stand, so they placed a chair on top of the gallows trap doors. They sat John in this chair, put a rope around his neck. Seconds later, the sheriff pulled the lever, and John fell to his death. He sat there dangling for minutes as John Hunslinger's son watched in the audience. He was buried at a grave in Westport, Baltimore. And, you know, if it wasn't for finding this bottle, John's story would have completely been forgotten because no one would have looked him up. No one would have known anything about this case. And yet I look at it as a black man, as you know, and that deals with the justice system, that nothing's really changed in the last 121 years. Everything is still the same. And unfortunately... John's memory was only found by me. Yeah, I mean, what I love about this story is that, you know, I love a chase. I love following a trail. And I love that he followed the trail from some riverside in Baltimore where he found the bottle all the way back into history and then forward. I just love that. He's such a, such a nerd for that. Yeah. And he's in, you know, what a great use of time. Like, I mean, he's not sitting and binging TV shows. No, no offense to those who are like me, but like way to get out there and just figure out a different way to look at the world, you know, use the opportunity of the pandemic to do it. It's awesome. Yeah. So before we get out of here, we want to thank the Wine Source, a wine, beer, and snack supplier on Elm Avenue in Hamden. Visit us at stoopstorytelling.com to listen to some of the stories we mentioned, Ariane's story, and learn about upcoming shows. And thank you, Maureen Harvey, for producing the podcast and to y'all for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the studio.